All right, we're going to pray, and then we will start by reading the, uh, the portion we read last week and the one for this week. So we will start in verse, uh, we'll start reading in verse 9, we'll read down through verse number 24, but we'll start our study in verse number 13. There's one verse, or maybe a couple of verses I want to just cover from last week before we get into what's in this week. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for your goodness and grace to us. Thank you for everyone that's here and those that listen that can't be here. And uh, Lord, thank you for uh, your word. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see, help me to see the wondrous things in your, in your law, in your word. As we study your word this morning, would you please walk in and out among us? Would you please teach us by your spirit? Remind us of those things that are in your word, those, those truths that we need for each one of us individually, Lord. Uh, we trust you to do that, Lord. Give me wisdom to know how to help your people. Yea, I pray that you would help your people through the lesson, through the word here today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, <clears throat> verse number nine says this, Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to thy word? We talked last week about how it is absolutely possible for a young man who has hot passions, as they say, the old timers used to say, that is, they have, they struggle with the reality of the lust of the flesh as a young man. It is possible for that young man to be clean. It is possible. Verse 10, with my whole heart have I sought thee. Oh, let me not wander from thy commandments. Thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. Blessed art thou, O Lord, teach me thy statutes. With my lips have I declared all the judgments of thy mouth. I have rejoiced in the way of thy testimonies as much as in all riches. I will meditate in thy precepts and have respect unto thy ways. I will not, I will delight myself in thy statutes. I will not forget thy word. Deal bountifully with thy servant, that I may live and keep thy word. Open thou mine eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. I am a stranger in the earth. Hide not thy commandments from me. My soul breaketh for the longing that it hath unto thy, thy judgments at all times. Thou hast rebuked the proud that are cursed, which do err from thy commandments." Remove from me reproach and contempt, for I have kept thy testimonies. Princes also did sit and speak against me, but thy servant did meditate in thy statutes. Thy testimonies are also are my delight and my counselors. So we're going to look at verse number 12 to begin. Blessed art thou, O Lord, teach me thy statutes. With my lips have I declared all the judgments of thy mouth. So we already talked about when we, talked, when we did the major themes study in Psalm 119, we saw that one major theme that pops out in Psalm 119 many, many times is this idea of the request of the psalmist, our request that God would teach us. And we saw also that oftentimes, just as a reminder, the way God teaches us, first of all, He doesn't just have raw knowledge and data to give to us. That's not all that He gives us. In other words, it's not simple. God is not, His intention is not only 
to, to just fill our minds with knowledge of the Bible, to know the Bible. You know, I heard something this week I thought was really good, of course, on social media. Uh, but, I mean, I guess not all of it's bad. Most of it is. But, uh, but anyway, this was good. He, this, uh, this preacher was um, making an observation about how important it was to be, to be spiritually minded and, and, and to, to have the right spirit the right attitude, you know, the, the love between believers and that kind of thing. And he said, some of the most carnal and arrogant and divisive and harmful people are people that know the Bible the best. There's truth in that. Raw knowledge is not all that God is teaching us. You know, what 1 Corinthians says, what? Knowledge does what? Puffeth up. So it's necessary, but the Lord wants us to teach us something more than knowledge. So when God is teaching us, teach me thy statutes, God is teaching us and he's using his word, but not to fill our heads simply with knowledge. I think, this is my estimation, I think the Lord would, let, would, would rather us have less raw knowledge and have more, uh, maybe a little less knowledge, but applying that knowledge that in such a way that affects the way we live more than just having a bunch of knowledge with no application, with no abiding by and living by what the Scripture says. So ultimately what the Lord is doing is He is teaching us not only the, the knowledge of the Scripture, He's also teaching us how to do it. That's really where, where you know, James says, if any man be a hearer of the Word and not a doer, Right? It's both. So the Lord, the Lord wants our learning to not just be theoretical, but also practical. He wants to change our life, change who we are, the way we live, the way we act, our spirit, our thoughts, our joy, our peace. Not just fill our head with knowledge. Now, the next logical step once he has taught us not only what the Bible says, but how to live what it says. Sometimes that involves pain and suffering, sadly. Sometimes it involves correction when we do wrong. But in, in one way or another, God is going to teach us. He is going to teach us. If, if you are a child of God, the Bible says that he is leading every one of his sons and daughters, as the case might be. And so he is going to teach us, whether we like it or not, he is going to teach us. Now, the, the next, if you turn the page on that teaching, here's what it says in verse number 13. With my lips have I declared all the judgments of thy mouth. After God has taught you and me, the Lord wants us then to teach others. The Lord, just like the, you know the Dead Sea. Why do they call the Dead Sea the Dead Sea? Anybody want to help me with that? Anybody know? Why do they call the Dead Sea the Dead Sea? Because it's dead? Now, the exactly, it's dead. There's no life in the Dead Sea. Why not? No fish life. Why not? Yes, sir. Too much, why is there too much salt? 
there's no outlet. So the, the, the water from the Jordan River comes into the Dead Sea and it does not go anywhere. It evaporates. And what's left is the, the concentration of the minerals gets higher and higher and higher and higher to such a point that things can't live. So the principle with that is there has to be an outlet. So here's the thing. Here's the principle. What God teaches you, He wants you to teach others. Well, you say, well, I'm not a teacher. Oh, yes, you are. And I am too. Now, you might not be a teacher in the official capacity. You might not be a teacher with a position to teach. But every one of us is in a position in our life in some way in some way, we have a relationship of influence with someone in our life such that we can teach them what God has taught us. And that might be scriptural things like raw information, or it might be practical application, how to do that which the Lord tells us to do, because there's a lot of that. Like in, you think of Titus with the, the older women. What does the Bible say the older women are to teach the younger women? What's it say? That the older women... Teach the younger women, not what Titus chapter 2 says. No. It says the older women teach the younger women to be chaste, keepers at home, lovers of their own husbands. In other words, practical things. Listen, I can't teach a woman how to love her husband. I cannot do that, right? Like I could tell you what the Bible says and I can give you maybe the raw knowledge and the verses, but you know, you know what those, those, those younger women need? They need a woman who's lived it and done it, who can come to them and say, now this is how you do it. This is what God, I made a lot of mistakes and this is how God taught me and this is the result and this is, these are the ways to do it. Amen. And that's just one example. Listen, every one of us is in a relationship with someone where we have influence. It might be with your children whether your children are adults or not, your children are your children forever, right? Well, I mean, be all technical, you know, while we live, okay, we're not going to be too technical. So your children are your children. So you have a place of uh, influence over them. You think of your grandchildren. You think of, you think of nieces and nephews. Even I think of uh, Mabel and I'm going to get it, I'm going to get it, I'm going to get it. Aeneas, right? I've been trying to memorize, memorize her, her name and say it just right because I don't want to mess up her name. You know, Pastor Stewart has influence over those girls. Now, it might not be as great as maybe he has over his own grandchildren, but he has influence over them, and that provides opportunity to teach them, some, sometimes large, sometimes small. Point is, all of us have that. You need to find that whatever, that influence. It might be a coworker. It might be a sibling. But every one of us is in, is in some capacity able to teach others. And that's not, again, that's not formal. Listen, we got to get, get out of our minds that everything in the Bible has to do with positions and form, formality. It's not. Being a teacher is not just doing what I'm doing. Being a teacher is when you are at home and your child or your grandchild or your sibling is faced with a, a, a decision or ask counsel or has a problem, whatever the case might be, you come in there equipped with the things that God has taught you and you can give them instruction. 
God, so here's how it works. God teaches the teacher who in turn teaches others. So here's the thing. God has chosen to teach through others. Now, maybe not in every case because all of us are priests of God. That is, we are part of the, we're children of God. We have direct access to God as a priest of God. That's what the Bible says, right? Priesthood of the believer. So that means we can read the Bible ourselves and God will teach us directly through His Spirit. But oftentimes, especially in a church or in a family, you have people in your life who have more experience than you and maybe you have more experience than others. You have more knowledge than they do. Maybe they have more knowledge than you. And that there's a teaching ministry that is available. Now, I just want to ask you this and we'll move on. Are you utilizing that opportunity that you have to teach those under your influence? To instruct them in the ways and the knowledge of God. That's what the psalmist is saying. He taught, he declared all the judgments of God's mouth. Now, if you would, look at verse 16, and then we'll get into our octave today. I called it an octave. I read, I read somebody called it an octave, and I was like, huh, that's a pretty neat, neat word for eight verses. Octet, I don't know what you call it. Verse 16 says, I will delight myself in thy statutes. I will not forget thy word. And we think of verse 11, thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. The idea is not forgetting. I tell my, I've told my kids, I prob, you've probably heard me say it too, here that, yes sir, that a major part of obedience is remembering. If you think about the numbers of times that you have fallen into sin, you've slipped up, you've stumbled. At that moment when you were tempted, at that moment when you were having trouble, probably the Word of God was pretty, pretty far from your mind. You forgot. It wasn't, at, it wasn't in your mind. And that's one of the major reasons that we do not obey the Lord is because we have forgotten what He said. That's why Peter says repeatedly, I'm stirring up your hearts by, by remembrance, right? Your pure hearts reminding you. That's why the preacher always reminds you of things. It's not nothing new. If you've been, listen, if you've been saved and you've been in church listening to sermons on a regular basis for five years, there's not going to be a whole lot new that the preacher's going to say. Now, there might be little facets that are maybe new to you and your experience, but there's not going to be a lot of new things said. But you know what? The hard part is remembering the things and obeying the things because often... Obedience, disobedience comes from forgetfulness, forgetting what the Lord has said. Now, let's look at verse number 17. Deal bountifully with thy servant that I may live and keep thy word. You know, when I read that word bountifully, you know what I thought of? You know the word, I, the idea of bounty, that means excess, right? That means more than enough, you know, abundance, and you know what I thought of in the New Testament context? It's not stated here, but I thought in the New Testament context, I thought of the word grace. When you think of bounty, you think of abundance. In other words, in grace, God just doesn't give us, God doesn't give us the minimum required. 
in grace, God gives us an abundance far more than is required, than it might be required from, from God in His goodness because He is inclined to do that for us. He's inclined to do more. And so in, in this case, what I see in this verse is grace. And if you look at it, it says, deal bountifully with thy servant. That's, now that's God's work of grace in us. God's work of grace with us. In other words, God is actively at work in our lives. And the reason and, and the the rule by which he works in us is a rule of abundance. He is listen, God is going to give you and God is going to give me what is necessary and more than necessary for us to keep his word. Now you, if, if the Lord left us alone and we had no, we had no, um, He didn't work in our lives and stir our hearts and prompt us and remind us of things, you know what would happen? We would not keep His Word. Because left to ourselves, without God's influence in our life, we do not have any hope of keeping His Word. So what, he do, what does He do? He deals with us. He's bountiful. Now hold your place here and look at Philippians chapter 2. If you would... Philippians 2, verse, verse 12. Verse 12 all, is one of those verses that really bothers people. But let's read it. We don't need to be scared of it. Wherefore, my beloved... As ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Oh no, God is telling us we must figure out how to get saved ourselves, right? No. Look at verse number 13. For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of His good pleasure. Look at what that verse is saying. It is God that worketh in you. That's, that's deal bountifully with thy servant. God working in us. But what is the end? What is God's end in working in us? What is it? In the verse, what does it say? What is his goal in working in us? What, is it, what does he want, want us to do? Somebody be brave enough to answer. It is of. So God's goal in working it in us is such that we would do His good pleasure, right? That's that's where He's. That's why He's working in us. That's Psalm one nineteen, verse number uh, fourteen. That's it, or uh, verse seventeen. That's what it is. Deal bountifully with thy servant that I might keep might keep thy word. All right. So God is working in us by grace because He wants us to to live obediently. He wants us to keep His Word. But notice it says, it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do. That means not only when God works, the reason we obey the Lord and do His pleasure is because He's working in us. We're not doing it ourselves independent of Him by our own strength. We're not. 
Even when you obey the Lord as a believer, you're, you don't have any, any grounds to glory. If God took his hand off of you and just cut off his influence from you and me, you know what we, what we would do? We would not do his good pleasure. The reason we do it is because he is working in us. Now, when I say that, you, in your mind, of course, you won't do it publicly, but in your mind, you might balk at that. You might think, well, hold on now. But I've done some things too, right? This is where we go back to what God says. Because not only is, it, is the result of God working in us that we do His good pleasure, but even the will, verse 13, right? Both to will and to do. That means the very desire to do God's will. Now, desire and doing are different. Obeying the Lord, keeping God's word is different than the desire to obey Him and keep His word. But even the verse says, even the very desire to do God's will is a result of God's work in us. That is God dealing bountifully with us to keep His word. Look at first, you're close to it. Look at First Thessalonians, if you would, chapter 2. So God, listen, this idea that God saves us, we trust in Christ and God saves us and walks away and we figure it out. Now there is a component whereby we must work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. That is, we must live out what God has said. There is a, there's a choice to be made there. But this idea that somehow God just, you know, winds us up and sends us on our way to live for Him is not true. Every day, every moment, the Lord is working in us to bring about that obedience, that obedient, godly, holy, uh, love-filled life that a believer should have. And it's all because of what God is doing in us. God is dealing bountifully with us. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. And he has means to do it. And this really goes, goes to the core of our study. Look at what it says. Chapter 2, verse 13. For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when ye received the word of God which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God. Look at this next phrase. Which effectually worketh also in you that believe. This is not talking about before you get saved. How do I know that? Because it says that you that believe. So this is the effect, effectual, working of, uh, of God in us after we're saved. Dealing bountifully. It is God which worketh in you. Now, what is the means that God uses to work in us? According to this verse, what does God use? Somebody help me. Help me now. Help me. What does God use to work in us? Yes, the Word of God. Is that not what we're talking about in Psalm 119? By your careful and my careful attention to God's Word, He works in us. See, God's Word is indispensable, essential to bring about that, that, that life that keeps His Word. That's how He does it. Now, if you would go back to Psalm 119, you'll notice it says, Thy servant, Verse 17, 
Interesting because that's not a, a common thing you find in this, uh, in this psalm. But of course, the word servant is all over the Bible. But I just want to ask you a question. Oftentimes we think of the servants of the Lord, and the Bible uses the word servants of the Lord in reference to those who are in a, in a special capacity of ministry. Like, uh, like to, to Timothy, who was a pastor, Paul said he's a, called him a servant. Paul referred to himself as a servant. James, Peter, they, were, they called themselves servants of God. But you know what? You, even if you're not in any official capacity like that, you as a believer in Christ are a servant of God. But do you consider yourself to be so? Do you, could you honestly pray to God and say, God, I am your servant. I am at your disposal. My life exists for your purpose. That's what a servant is. A servant, sometimes we think of like Ephesians chapter 6, talking about servants and masters. We think of servants we, we most frequently apply it to employees. We're not God's employees where we, we clock in and clock out. We are God's servants. Do you consider yourself to be at God's disposal wholly and completely? It's a question I ask myself as well. I am your servant. Can you honestly pray that before the Lord? That's what the psalmist says. Look at verse number 18. Open thou mine eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. Now Spurgeon said this on this verse. He says, Some men perceive no wonders in the gospel. They read the same Bible we read and don't see anything special. That's just a fact. Yawn, you know, as they say. They're not interested they don't find it amazing. The problem is the eyes. We talked about this verse previously, but the problem is the eyes. Let me read you a few verses here just for time. Ephesians 1.18 says this, The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of His calling and what the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. <clears throat> On the road to Emmaus, in Luke chapter 24, the disciples, two of the disciples were walking with Jesus. And he was, he was actually, this was, I think, after they had went to the place of lodging. But Jesus was explaining the scriptures of the Old Testament. They were listening, but were not understanding what he was talking about. And then in verse 45, it says this, Then opened he their understanding, that they might understand the scripture. You know, we are naturally blind. And, you know, here, here's the danger. And as I was reading this, I was trying to think, what are the wondrous things in thy, thy law? You know, there's, there's, many, there, there's many things, the most important of which is the gospel itself, that Christ died for sinners, that God loves hateful people like me and like you. God loved people that did not love Him. God loved the people that nailed the nails into the very Savior's hands and feet. That's a wondrous thing. But here's our problem. We get used to hearing wondrous things such that are not wondrous anymore. If you lived on the rim of the Grand Canyon, how many of you have seen the Grand Canyon? 
handful, four or five people. You don't remember. She was knee had a grasshopper then. If you lived on the rim of the Grand Canyon, do you think those that live on the rim of the Grand Canyon have the same awe and marvel as those who walk up to the canyon because you kind of got to walk up a, up a hill before you can see it and you kind of walk up and then you can see it for the first time and you're just, just absolutely awestruck. There's, there's barely words to describe how magnificent the Grand Canyon is. You ought to, it ought to be on your bucket list to go see it. Enough said. There's my plug. All right? Those that live on the rim don't have that sense of awe, even though it's just as awesome. Right? The Grand Canyon hasn't lost its splendor because some, some guy lives on the rim. It is just as magnificent as it ever was. But he doesn't feel that. You know why? Because he's... He's so familiar with it. And truth is, we should be familiar with the gospel and the truths of God's word. Man, I mean, I'll just be honest. I sense that in my heart. Lord, I should be more moved and have more marvel and have more awe in my heart toward what your word says and describes about you, about the gospel and those things than I do. And I just say that maybe as a little bit of a confession because I think probably that's true of us. Lord, open my eyes, right? Open my eyes. The Grand Canyon is no less marvelous than it ever was. I just, I'm just blind to it. I'm just not seeing it. If they in heaven are singing of the lamb that was slain and how they have been redeemed to God out of every nation and kindred and tribe and tongue for all of eternity, then that fact must be absolutely Marvelous. If that's what they're singing about. And they are. But we also see the centrality of God's word. Where does the Lord tell us to look for these marvelous things? Where, where are they to be found? Come on, help me now. In the Bible. The problem is in church, we're looking, for, we're looking for a miracle here. We're looking for some, how did I, 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 I'll read it like I wrote it. We're always looking around us, asking God to do some wondrous thing in our life, and that's fine. But oftentimes we care little about seeing what the wondrous things that God says in His Word. In other words, in other words, we want to see the sensational around us by personal experience and don't even bother to know the secrets of God's Word. And that's when our experience, it gets exalted above what God's Word says and to the point that I've heard, I've heard with my own ears people say things like, I don't know what the Bible says, but I know what happened to me. Well, hold on. Lord, open thou mine eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. That's the first place where we look for marvels. And then from that, it informs where we look for other great things that God does. Now, we're running out of time, of course, as always. Verse number, uh, verse number 19 says this, I am a stranger in the earth. Hide not thy commandments from me. This is interesting. Stranger. A stranger is a foreigner. When we lived in Cambodia, we were strangers. Not, not just somebody you don't know, 
but even more, somebody that doesn't belong, right? Now, in the Old Testament, many of the promises that God gave to Israel dealt with a specific strip of land. You know what God promised them? He said, every man would dwell under his vine and under his fig tree. You know what that tells us? That you would have your nice little plot of land and you'd be able to farm it and all the so a lot of the promises and blessings of God were tied to a physical place that was God's blessing to Israel David lived in that time that economy where God's blessing were tied to that's why when when Israel eventually sinned and rebelled against God over a long period of time God ejected them out of Canaan by exile that's, that's why, because they forfeited the blessing of that land that God gave them. Okay, but here he says, I'm a stranger in the earth. It's one thing to say, I'm a stranger in my country, or I'm a stranger. When we went to Cambodia, we were strangers in Cambodia. But David is saying here, no matter where I'm at on earth, I'm a stranger. I don't belong. Psalm 39, verse 12, listen to this. Maybe we'll pick this up next week. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear unto my cry. Hold not thy peace at my tears, for, listen to this, for I am a stranger with thee, with God, and a sojourner as all my fathers were. So even though you might be born and raised in Greenville, South Carolina, like I was, I feel home, at home, in Greenville more than any other place in the universe. But I'm a stranger. Even here, I'm not particularly in place. What do I mean by that? I mean that when you think about the law of God, the Word of God, you and I are citizens of another land just like Hebrews 11 says, of another country. And that country has a different set of laws, a different set of ethics, a different set of rules. It's found in the Word of God. You know what? It's perfectly natural for a believer in Christ to feel, even at home, to feel out of place in the world. David did. He felt out of place on earth. That's what he said. To feel like an outsider among, even at home, maybe not at your house, but in your own land. You know what? We should be because we are, strange, we are strangers in this world and we are members of a, if you could say, a different society, citizens of another country. You know, our laws, the Word of God, are unfamiliar and really, in a lot of ways, unpalatable to those who live down here. <laughs> it's true. And so we feel out of place. He says, I am a stranger in the earth. Hide not thy commandments from me. You know, one of the, one really good thing for you and for me to do and remind ourselves of is that when we feel, when we don't fit in with those around us, maybe at work or whatever, we don't fit in because of what they're doing or saying or whatever, that's normal. You shouldn't fit in. You shouldn't. That doesn't mean you should be eccentric or an oddball. But look, if, if God's word by which we live our lives sets us apart from them because we're, we're foreigners in their land, 
so to speak, you know what? We might feel a little bit out of place, and that's okay. The sooner you and I can be okay with that, the better we'll be. The better we'll be. Let's pray together.